So tonight's Bible reading comes from John chapter 7, the whole lot of it. So I'll just give you a chance to open up to that. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it and that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet come fully. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learned? When he has never studied. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. So why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you the circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me, because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and from him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, 
whom those who believed in him were yet were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who has gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. That's okay. We have messages first. Um, I believe we have a couple of notices to go through, so we'll uh, jump into that real quick. Um, thanks for reading that big, uh, big chapter, Ryan. Um, I kind of want us to go through the whole thing at once because it's this one big episode about Jesus at the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, so keep all that that you just heard in your, in your short-term memory, and then look at this, and then we'll come back. Okay. Um, Vanuatu crisis, Cyclone Pam. There's little inserts in your bulletins, um, information in there on how to give for um, Baptist World Aid. It's kind of our duty as Christians um, to help the poor and the afflicted. Um, it's a privilege we have that we get to be encouraged by God directly to do that. So um, please think about that, read that in your bulletins, and um, be generous with those who need help. And our Easter services on Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. Details are there. I believe they'll be reprinted in your bulletin as well. Um, Easter. You know, this is the most significant time of year for us, which uh, syncs up neatly with the passage that we're, <laughs> with the passage we're going through now, because the Festival of Booths is the most significant uh, holiday for the ancient Jews. Thanks. All right. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at the Scriptures. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to gather together, to look at your word, to learn, learn more about uh, who your son was, who your son is, and our duties towards him. We pray you open up your gospel to our hearts and open up our hearts to the words of your gospel. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. I like American football. Now, I know I've lost half the room just by saying that, but bear with me. Now, whether or not you actually care or whit about sports, 
if you're an Australian, you've either been involved in this conversation or been forced to listen to one about what real football is. You're all remembering this scenario. Whether or not it's league or it's union or it's soccer or the other one. Yep, there you go. I actually knew that I was playing. Um, yes, so most Australians have been forced to be adjacent to that conversation at least, to have an opinion on that issue whether or not they really want one. Now, I'm not uh, willing to go to the stake for this, but I do like American football, and if I had to make a claim, that's probably the one I'd go for. The Super Bowl was on a couple of months ago, um, and I particularly like the drama and very American kind of uh, flair and theatricality they have in that event. They've got microphones on every player's helmet so that you can hear the tense brotherly feedback going on when things are really well or really badly. But I have no idea what's going on in that game. I like the game. I understand that Super Bowl Sunday is one of the most significant days in the American calendar. But I don't know what's happening. I'm afraid I miss a lot of the tension and the important details in the strategy. I am not a natural sportsman. I have never played American football. What's a running back? What's a down? How many points do you get kicking the thing through the thing? These are all important questions to which I am not enlightened. And reading through the, gospels, through the Gospels can sometimes be like this when we hit things like John 7 and the Feast of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles. It sounds pretty important. It was a big Jewish festival, one of several. I'm sure the Jews had got a lot more out of it in their cultural context than we do. But our main engagement with these festivals is that Jesus shows up to them periodically. So we can miss a lot of what's significant if we don't know exactly what's going on. What's a water libation? What's a luvav? What is and is the point of a tabernacle? So it's worth us exploring what that scene is. And what about that festival is why Jesus chose to engage it the way that he did now. So the Jews have three big, very significant feasts, or the first century Jews had these three big, very significant feasts throughout the year that called all the Jews to come to Jerusalem to participate in them. They had Passover, they had Pentecost, and they had the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles is the last one in their calendar year and the most significant holiday, arguably. It's the festival of atonement. It's a joyous celebration. The tabernacles, or booths, are their little tents or makeshift huts that they make, and they eat, their, uh, they eat their meals in these little huts for the duration of that week as a kind of remembrance of how God led them through the desert for 40 years fleeing from Egypt. And um, that's a way for them to kind of recreate the nomadic homelessness they went through at that time, to remember how dependent on God they are. There's lots of music, lots of dancing. And interestingly, I learned that apparently the men danced, but the women didn't. So what they did was they constructed special seating around the temple for this event. And the men would go down and dance and the women would sit in these stadium seats and watch them dance. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the words Jewish festival. I'd always kind of assumed it was mostly chanting and calf slaughtering, but apparently on this most holy ritual of the year, the wives of Jerusalem grabbed a stadium seat and sent their husbands out into a kind of dance battle royale. Every day they led this merry procession for a week from the temple to the edge of the city, I like to assume it happened in a kind of a conga line. I can't back that up. 
But the priest at the front of the line would take some water from this sacred spring at the edge of the city, and then they boogie back to the temple, continuing to dance and sing. And amidst this, they uh, use that water for the water libations, a water offering. They're pouring that out before God. And amidst that, more dancing and actual legitimate flaming torch juggling. Sounds fake, right? But no, genuinely part of the spectacle. Water and light were the two big themes of this festival. And so lots of flame, lots of water. And it's this festival with all this spectacle and grandeur that Jesus' brothers are harassing him about in the opening of this chapter. They say, leave Galilee and go to Judah. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Now, being a Jew, he was required to go up to the festival anyway, culturally. His brothers here are trying to convince our Lord that the festival is the best place for him to do his miracles if he's really trying to gain all this attention. Now, what happens next we have to view carefully because it's very easily misunderstood. Because two things happen. In verse 8, Jesus says, I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet come. And then in verse 10, Jesus goes up to the festival. We have a word for when someone says something and then does the opposite. And we don't usually ascribe that to the actions of Jesus. So the obvious question here is, did Jesus lie to get his brothers off his back? The answer is, kind of looks that way on first pass, but no. Verses 6 and 7 make clear the intention and reason for Jesus' actions. Therefore, Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. Then Jesus waits in Galilee for a little while before heading up secretly so he can pop out halfway through the festival. So Jesus has a specific timing about how he intends to arrive and appear during the festival of booths because he knows the Jewish officials are hostile to him. So we do well to see that Jesus' response to his brothers there is him turning down his offer to go with them on the first day rather than the festival in total. Now two weeks ago we looked at John 5 and how after this healing Christ did on the Sabbath, they took notice of him, the Jewish leaders and authorities, and decided at that point they kind of wanted him dead. They haven't forgotten and neither did Jesus. So he decided to go up in secret. And imagine the surprise of those authorities when he does in fact show up halfway through the festival teaching at the temple with all the authority and the wisdom in the way that Jesus classically teaches. The people hear him during these days of teaching and celebration and they have mixed reactions. We get reactions ranging from, ranging from, you have a demon, which is the first century equivalent of calling a man crazy, all the way to people believing in him straight away and saying, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? What more proof do you need? And he is the Messiah. Twice the crowd tries to seize him, and the uh, temple guards are sent to capture him. But uh, no one can lay a hand on him. In fact, the temple guards get to return sheepishly to their uh, temple leaders with this kind of comedic scene between verses 45 and 52, where the Pharisees ask them, why didn't you bring him? And they say, no one ever spoke like this guy. That's great. Why didn't you arrest him? He convinced us not to. 
But the kicker of this chapter, the most impressive moment comes in verse 37. After the people have tried to grab him and the guards are dispatched and are hunting around for him, Jesus stands up and in a loud voice says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, without understanding the context of that festival, it sounds like Jesus making a claim to be refreshment to the soul, but knowing that festival of booths is structured around this water libation, this special pouring out of the water, we can see he's claiming more than that. He's, he's taking this, the metaphor of the water from that ritual, from that festival, and applying it to himself. Like he would do during Passover when he took their tradition and made that about himself when he and the disciples had the Last Supper. And like he would do on Pentecost when he would unleash the power of the Holy Spirit after he was raised from the dead. Here Jesus invades this holy celebration, indicates himself and says, I am the real source of the water you need. This whole festival is about me. It's Jesus declaring himself to the people as the Son of God. Sent to speak God's teaching and in time to send the Holy Spirit into the souls, into the bodies of those believers to make in them rivers of living water. Now this chapter could be cut up into many sermons, four or five, because there's so much in it and the way people react and the way Jesus presents himself are all excellent for Bible study. But I want to talk about three things this passage tells us about who Jesus was to the people who were in that Jerusalem during that festival and what that means for us. First, Jesus was the one they were dancing for. Jesus was the one they were celebrating for. They didn't know it, but they were twirling torches and cutting rugs and playing instruments all for him that whole time and had been doing so for hundreds of years. All this celebration, all this ceremony was about remembering God preserved the Jews in the wilderness and that by their offerings that they could be reconciled to him. This water offering and all the fattened calves and lambs that came in Hebrew history, they're all images of sacrifice that are meant to point back towards Jesus. Christ points to himself and points out pretty explicitly in this chapter and some of the people actually listened to him and got it this time around. But plenty didn't, dismissing him and taking the celebration for granted. Because Jesus is the reason they have to dance and celebrate. Without him, rejecting him, there's only the horrible reality that everything else they have to celebrate is going to pass away. Now, we know Jesus is the reason for our celebration. We don't go in so much for ritual dancing in this church we're more sedate than that. And Baptist churches have a historically checkered record of being certain about how much celebrating is too much celebrating in a service. Honestly, when we're singing as a church and the youth block over here starts clapping along to a song, that feels pretty special. But to some churches, though, instruments, clapping, joy, all of these things are one step down a path that leads to disco balls and glow sticks and rave parties and Satan, and they want to stay entirely away from that stuff. But whether it's a mosh pit of young people at Easterfest, or if it's a warbling choir in a traditional church, the reason that we have to worship and sing and dance is that Jesus Christ has come. He's been that perfect sacrifice that we needed. And we can have through him the promise of new life. 
Now, if you don't normally sing when the music's going, I invite you to reconsider it tonight when we rise to worship later on. We have a gift that is worth singing about. On the other hand, if you're the kind of person who sings their heart out but kind of gets lost in the music and doesn't really think about what they're singing, I invite you to maybe dial it back a notch. Really consider the things that you are singing, the words that you are giving up to God. That's your sacrifice. Jesus is the reason for our celebration and we owe him our intentional, joyful worship. Secondly, Jesus is the one they were all waiting for and the ones they must wait for. This chapter is all about God's timing and how the people are dependent on it, how their actions and words succeed and fail based on God's timing. Jesus' brothers harass him to go up to the festival early, but no, he'll go when he's good and ready in God's timing. The authorities try to seize him, but his hour has not yet come, and Jesus will come back to Jerusalem, Jerusalem to be crucified at the hour that he chooses later, when that hour has come in God's timing. He's chastised for healing a man on the Sabbath, but Jesus is the Son of God, and the sacred activities that he does transcend those restrictions on the Sabbath, and especially those weird extensions that the Pharisees placed on it. While Jesus operated on earth, he did his public ministry for three years, and every step of the way he knew what he was doing and when to do it. The disciples, the crowds, even the Pharisees and their plot to kill him folded around his timetable. The Jews were powerless to capture him, to move him, to arrest him, even to understand him unless he wanted them to do so. And there are many times for us that we encounter God's timing and perhaps don't like it. The Bible implores us to be praying and hoping for Jesus to come and to return for that final day where we can move to a new and better life in heaven. But I know that there's still a part of my heart that's not entirely on board with that suggestion. If Jesus came tonight, most of me would say, yes, heaven. The other half of me would be wondering, never got to see an American football game. Hmm. It's a ridiculous thought. I mean, I know there's no joy on this earth that can compare what's going to come in the new kingdom. But we as humans are hardwired by our sinful limitations and perceptions to think of this world as if it should run on our timetable to the things we want. The hard times seem to go on too long. Or perhaps the next step in life's journey hasn't revealed itself and God seems to be taking his time about offering direction. But a grand lesson that we get to learn and then learn a little bit more every day as we follow Christ is that God really is in control. We're not just saying it. And that as we follow Christ, we see that more and more. And he really does have a plan and really is working out his timing. And because we know that his plan is best, the best thing we can do is align ourselves with it and operate inside his timing. The best, happiest, most peaceful way we can live then is learning to wait on God's timing to see his will done. And finally, Jesus is the one they were thirsting for. Those Jews who strove their whole lives to obey the law knew they were falling short if they were paying attention. 
And if they were honest, they knew they couldn't get close to God no matter how much fire juggling and dancing they did. You see, Jesus once used this water thirst metaphor before, but it came off a little too subtle for his audience at the time. If you recall John chapter 4, which we've been through, he meets the woman at the well. And her response is earnest, but kind of misses the point on the first pass. Jesus says to her, you know, you drink this water from the well and you'll be back again tomorrow, but I'll give you the water you'll only need to drink once and then you'll never be thirsty again. She takes this to mean that he has some kind of magic water that will save her hours of walking back and forth to the well. How convenient. But he makes the metaphor a little less subtle this time when he puts himself beside the water libation, the sacred heart of the festival of booths, the symbolic offering on behalf of the people to a perfect God. And he says, if you are thirsty for this water, then I have the source. That thirst and the satisfying of it by the Holy Spirit is our only opportunity to be reconciled to God. Thirst is the word chosen here because it describes closely a reality in our soul, the need to be satisfied by that connection to the divine. Just as thirst or hunger warns us that our body needs water and food to survive, so that thirst in our spirit tells us that we need the living waters of communion with God to survive. But natural as hunger and thirst are for us, they require our response. I don't play computer games as much as I used to. That's a good start. But back in my day, I played a lot. Me and my nerd friends, and we are nerds, or were nerds, not now. I watch American football. We skipped our, uh, our school formal to run a 30-year hour, a 30-year, wow, a 30-hour gaming marathon, living off McDonald's and home brand cola. It was awesome. But I've been disturbed by a trickle of stories that come through the internet, particularly from places like South Korea, where the gamer culture is really intense. Terrible stories of young parents who sometimes allow their children to starve to death while they remain addicted to a game in the same house. Often enough in virtual life games where you build a digital family, there's parents raising virtual children while their flesh and blood children die, lying neglected and unheard. And the crowning story of this kind is a particular young man who simply slumped over his keyboard and died one day because his distraction in game had so completely dulled his senses that he did not know that he was dehydrated until his blood was too thick to carry the oxygen to his brain that he needed and he just died. Thirsted and starved to death in a chair four meters away from a fridge and a tap. It's hard to imagine, but it happens. People can dull their ears to the cries of their own children, even to the needy sensory scream of their own body dying if they are sufficiently devoted to the distraction. And we must never let ourselves get too busy by any distraction to recognize the urging of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing as self-destructive to the Christian life as being able, unable to find time for reading his word and committing to him in prayer and coming together to worship regularly as a body of his people. That first desperate thirst for those who dare to acknowledge it is quenched forever 
when a person accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's what God promises. You will drink this once and you will not be thirsty again. And praise God for that. But when that new life begins, it begins not with a mortal thirst to know God, but with an earnest desire to do good and to do God's will. We do well to thank God for quenching that first terrible thirst and then ask him earnestly, what would he have us do now? The fire juggling, the dancing, the sacrifices, it's all about Jesus. All the ritual was there to draw attention to him. Their challenge was to recognize what that festival was about and to act on it. Now, we're going to worship very soon. And throughout this week, there will be things that don't happen to act on our schedule and opportunities to do the will of God that we should be thirsting for. Our challenge is to recognize that our world, our lives are about Jesus. Let's recognize it and act on it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your son, Jesus Christ. The one that our souls thirsted for and you satisfy. Please help us to abide by your timing and to rest in your control. Help us to remember and recognize that we're on your side and we follow your timing. And be with us now, God, as we come to worship you. Encourage us not to shy away from worship or to get lost in ritual and rob it of its direction. But always to focus our worshiping hearts upon your son. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.